This is Our American Stories. We wanted to bring you the story of a guy you know, but don't know as well as you're about to get to know him. And his name is Tony Dungy. And if you're a football fan, and even if you're not, you know that he was the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl when his Colts defeated the Chicago Bears in 2007 in the Super Bowl. By the way, those were two African-American coaches and also two good Christian men. And Lovey Smith was the other coach. And, well, he gave a Hall of Fame speech because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Tony Dungy, in 2016. And we love to bring you talks and speeches that reveal the character and nature of folks. We did it with John Glenn uh, when he was... When he was buried, we went back into the archives to some of the speeches he had given at the Smithsonian to bring his voice to life so you could hear from him. And you're about to hear Coach Tony Dungy talking about his life in this speech. And it starts by Coach remembering his parents. When I got the news, my first thoughts were of all the people God placed in my path to help make this possible. It started in Jackson, Michigan, and I couldn't have had a better upbringing. I'm just sorry that my parents, Wilbur and Cleo Mae Dungy, aren't alive to see this because they would be so proud. My dad always preached to us to set our goals high and to not complain about negative circumstances. Just look for a way to make things better. My mom taught us that as a Christian, your character, your integrity, and how you honored God were so much more important than your job title. One of her favorite Bible verses was Matthew 16, 26. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I know that she's happy to know that her son never forgot that verse. Wilbur and Clee May. Wilbur and Clee May, the parents. First thing Tony Dungy thanks. And then he thanked his coaches. Had a lot of excellent coaches growing up in all sports, but I really have to thank my high school football coach, Dave Driscoll. I came to him as a 14-year-old who felt like I knew it all. And Coach Driscoll helped me become a good player, but more than that, he helped me become a leader. He taught me how to think the game. Woody Woodenhofer and Tom Moore were the coaches who recruited me to the University of Minnesota, and I thank them for impacting my life. Woody would end up coaching me with the Steelers. And Tom Moore, you heard Marvin talk about Tom. Well, Tom rode with me on the very first plane ride I ever took, my recruiting trip to Minnesota when I was scared to get on the plane. He was my quarterback coach as a freshman, and then 33 years later, he was our offensive coordinator in Super Bowl 41 with the Colts, and he's still coaching now, and I owe him a lot. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Woody. And a big thank you to our head coach of the Gophers, Cal Stoll, who told us as freshmen that he expected us to be uncommon, not just average. And that thought has stuck with me throughout my life. And it's a great thought to be uncommon and not average. After some great formative years, Tony Dungy's career, his life, hit a speed bump. Well, after four years of playing quarterback at Minnesota, I expected to continue doing that in the NFL, but it didn't happen. In 1977, even though the draft was 12 rounds long then, I didn't get picked, and I was devastated. But it just is one example of God's plans being better than our plans. Woody and Tom were now in Pittsburgh coaching, 
and they convinced Chuck Knoll to give a guy who'd never played any position but quarterback a shot at another position. I have to say that $2,000 signing bonus I got didn't last long, <laughs> but I ended up gaining a lot more than money. Chuck Knoll would play a huge, huge role in my life and teach me so much about the game of football. But in our first meeting, he said that even though we were now professionals and we're being paid to play the game, we shouldn't make it our life. There was more to life than just football, and he wanted to help us find our life's work. But Coach Knoll, Art Rooney Sr., and Dan Rooney lived that out every day in the way they led the Steeler organization. Dungy talks about how one man in particular stood out in the Steelers organization. There were so many great players on that team. A lot of them up here right now as I speak today, and they all had an impact on me, but none of them more so than Donnie Shell. Donnie took me under his wing, and I learned so much from him, not just about playing safety, but about being a Christian athlete, a husband and father, and a teammate. Thank you, Donnie. And then Dungy remembers many setbacks and opportunities on and off the field. After getting a Super Bowl ring my second year, I experienced another disappointment, getting traded. But again, the Lord was using disappointment to help me grow. With the San Francisco 49ers, I got to play for Bill Walsh and see another system. And Eddie DeBarlo was instilling the same principles in his team that I'd seen with the Steelers, doing everything in a first-class and family way. My playing career only lasted one more year, and suddenly, at 25 years old, I was looking for a real job. That's when Coach Noel called me and gave me that chance to start my life's work. Coming back to Pittsburgh was the beginning of my coaching journey, but there was another blessing in store for me, meeting my beautiful wife, Lauren, the love of my life, my biggest supporter, and my greatest blessing. And when we come back, it's almost a biography listening to this speech, and that's why we love to play him. In his words, and you hear him referring to his, his Lord, and when we do and when we can, we focus on people's faith. And when it's not there, that's fine too, but we don't leave it out when it is there. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Tony Dungy's Hall of Fame speech, A Day in the Life, A Glimpse into the Man who was the first African-American to ever win a Super Bowl. More on Tony Dungy from Tony Dungy. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our first wave of children came soon after we got married. 
Sierra, Jamie, and Eric's lives were typical of assistant coaches' kids. Moving every few years, leaving friends, making new friends, and they did it without complaining. Now our second wave of kids, Jordan, Jade, Justin, Jason, Jalen, Jaden, and Jayla, well, they had a little more stability. Jordan and Jade were able to experience some of the perks of being the head coach's kids, but they also had their disappointments, like when Dad couldn't come to a birthday party or a school performance. But all ten of them know I love them, and I hope they know how much I appreciate their sacrifices. And that's Tony Dungy talking about his family. He had spoken about his bride before we uh, left you off in the last segment. And now we continue with this great speech by Tony Dungy. He was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. And periodically, we love to take you back to old speeches, old essays, old movies, because if you didn't bump into it, it's not old. And this reveals so much of Tony Dungy's character in this Hall of Fame speech. Here, he recalls some of the steps along the path to becoming a head coach. Well, getting to that head coaching job was a long journey from Pittsburgh to Kansas City to Minnesota. 15 great years and a lot of wonderful people. But I have to thank two people in particular. During my four years with the Vikings, Tom Lanphier, our chaplain, met with me weekly going through the book of Nehemiah to give me a picture of biblical leadership that I would use to guide my teams. Thank you, Tom. And Denny Green, Denny went out of his way to teach me the responsibilities of being a head coach. Taught me about things on and off the field. He did it because he wanted to see me become a head coach. And he wanted me to be prepared and be ready when that opportunity came. And I love him for that. But as much as I appreciate that, The thing I'm most grateful to Denny for is that he made sure his assistant coaches had quality time with our families. He let my boys come to camp and be around their dad. He made sure we were able to be husbands and fathers as well as coaches. And just as Coach Noel had done, Denny showed me that you could win doing it that way. I thanked him many, many, many times over the years, but I really wish I could thank him one more time tonight for everything he did to help me take that final step. And who your mentors are matters, folks. And if you're lucky enough to stumble upon the right ones, they can change your whole life, your whole worldview. Tony Junji was lucky to stumble into Denny Green, but he also picked that chaplain. So some by design, some by chance. But they shaped this man deeply. Here's Dungy finally talking about getting the gig he'd always dreamed of. And that step came in 1996 when I got the job I thought I'd never get, head coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I thank Rich McKay, who headed up the search, and Brian Joel and Ed Glazer for their confidence in me. And I'm especially grateful to Malcolm Glazer, who was so supportive and so loving and gave me so much practical advice. Our family enjoyed a phenomenal six years in Tampa. 1997 was probably my favorite year in coaching. We made the playoffs for the first time in 15 years 
and the Bucks fans went crazy over their team. And those fans still remain special to me to this day. Dungey remembers another big setback, another big opportunity. Losing my job in, nine, in 2002 after a playoff loss was another painful disappointment. But again, God used it to lead me to a blessing. That's when Jim Irsay called and gave me the opportunity to join him and Bill Polin in Indianapolis. Like Rich McKay, Bill had an exceptional eye for talent, and he built a tremendous football team. We had a lot of fun over the next seven years, highlighted by that Super Bowl 41 victory. But I'll tell you, the most satisfying part was doing what Jim talked about in that first phone conversation, connecting with our community and making the Colts an integral part of the Indianapolis landscape. I'd like to thank you big time, Jim and Bill, and the Coles fans. You made us feel like native Hoosiers, and our family loves you. And Dungee then went on to thank many other people, the assistant coaches, the staff, the players, and one player in particular, Peyton Manning. But the biggest reason I'm here tonight is the people I was able to work with during my 13 years as a head coach. I had fantastic assistant coaches in Tampa and Indianapolis, and some awesome staff people. I wish I had time to recognize them individually because they were the big reason why we were successful. You don't win in the NFL without players, and was I ever blessed with players? Again, I'm not going to recognize them all individually, but so many of them are here tonight, and I'm going to ask them to stand while I talk about them. There's a bunch up here on this podium I'd like to stand, guys who played for me. There's some in my section. They're in Marvin's section. If you played for me, I'd love for you to stand up so I could recognize you. As you see, several of them are in the Hall of Fame already. Others are certainly going to follow them. And there's no doubt these guys are responsible for me being up here today. I thank you guys. I love you, every one of you. Thank you. And some guys pretend to not take the credit, and other guys don't want the credit. And you can tell, if you were watching that, that Dun, Dun G, well, he didn't like taking credit for any of this stuff. Last but not least, Dun G had to turn his attention to the trailblazers, the African-American men in this sport who paved the way for him to be, again, the very first African-American to coach an NFL Super Bowl winner. And finally, I'd like to say a special thank you to 10 men. Willie Brown, Buck Buchanan, Ernell Durden, Bob Ledbetter, Elijah Pitts, Jimmy Ray, Johnny Rowland, Al Tabor, Lionel Taylor, and Alan Webb. Now those names might not be familiar to you, but those were the African-American assistant coaches in the NFL in 1977, my first year in the league. (laughs) 
It was a small group of men, just 10 of them, if you can believe that, 10 African-American assistant coaches in the entire NFL. Many of them never got the chance to move up the coaching ladder like I did, but they were so important to the progress of this league. Those men were like my dad. They didn't complain about the lack of opportunities. They found ways to make the situation better. They were role models and mentors for me and my generation of young African-American players like Ray Rhodes, Terry Rubisky, and Herm Edwards. We were in the 80s trying to decide whether we could make coaching a career or not. Without those 10 coaches laying the groundwork, the league would not have the 200-plus minority assistant coaches it has today. And we would not have had Lovey Smith and Tony Dungy coaching against each other in Super Bowl 41. So tonight, as I join Fritz Pollard as the second African-American coach in the Hall of Fame, I feel like I'm representing those 10 men and all the African-American coaches who came before me and paved the way. And I thank them very, very much. And there you have it, Tony Dungy's speech. We're going to play this last clip now. Here is how he closed things out in The Lord Canada. has truly led me on a wonderful journey through 31 years in the NFL, through some temporary disappointments to some incredible joys. I cherish every single relationship that I was able to make over those 31 years, and I'll always be grateful to the National Football League for giving me my life's work. Thank you, and God bless. Don't complain. Make the situation better. His mom and dad told that to him. These 10 great African-American assistant coaches, and again, there were only 10 when he came into the league. There are now 200-plus. America still trying and working hard to overcome its original sin, and working hard it is. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And all week long, we've been telling the story of the Constitution, because on September 17th, 1787, our founders signed the Constitution, and it is the oldest Constitution in the world, and it is no accident, as you've learned from listening to so many great storytellers all week long. And our sponsor of National Constitution Week is Chuck Stetson and the Stetson family office. And he joins us now. Chuck, there's the often told story of a woman who approached Benjamin Franklin after the Constitutional Convention and asked him what kind of government the delegates had created. Franklin's famous reply, a republic, if you can keep it. Let's start right there, Chuck. Talk about the importance of our Constitution and how we're currently doing in terms of teaching our Constitution, to the next generation. 
Well, we are in a situation where, despite the federal legislation led by Senator Robert C. Byrd of West Virginia in 2004, which requires all schools and universities receiving federal monies to do some program on the U.S. Constitution on Constitution Day, uh, they basically ignore it. They don't do it. And we really need to do it if we want to preserve the republic. We have to fight for freedom. We fought to get it, but we can't become complacent. Freedom is a totally unnatural thing. Slavery is the norm. All we have to do is go to uh, an American scholar and columnist, Thomas Sowell, who said, slavery is thousands of years older than freedom. It's so old that no one knows when or how it begun. It existed among people of every color on every inhabited continent. It was there. Freedom is the exception. And we see that as being the exception because when we have 195 countries that Freedom House has uh, looked at and rated them, whether they're free or not free or partly free, we have 45% that were rated free. So that's a minority on the basic tenets, including free and fair elections, the right of minorities, freedom of the press and rule of law. Then you have 30% that are partly free, and you have 25% that are not free. So Benjamin Franklin's right. We have to fight for this, and we have to understand it, and we have to fight for it. And, you know, when we mean and talk about fighting for it, obviously, we don't have to be punching or or fighting per se. Uh, In the end, we have to fight to make sure that the story of freedom, the story of our Constitution, the story of the Declaration of Independence is told. And I think for so many young people and even older people, the problem here, really here, Chuck, is twofold. First, we make it really boring, but it wasn't. The men who did this in the 18th century didn't know what was going to happen to them. They didn't know the experiment would work, and my goodness, they risked their lives to do it. But we just sort of check off facts, dates, and memorize. So I think in large measure, we're to blame, that is, the grown-ups are to blame, And moreover, you know, if we don't care enough and push our local school board, push our local and state legislatures, and push our national electorate, um, why are we blaming them? I mean, to what degree is this on us, the adults who are listening, Chuck? We need to mobilize the American people to ask the schools to do what they were told to do by their legislatures, both from the federal government. We also have a Celebrate Freedom Week Uh, which is in uh, five states, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, and Florida. The legislatures have already spoken, both in the federal and the state level. It's just the schools are not doing it, and somehow we're misleading the kids. There's a Pew Research Center report of kids 18 to 29. 49% of them have a positive view of socialism, and there's only 43% that have a positive view of capitalism and freedom. Why is that? We're not teaching the right stuff. We have to get this thing right. So the question I pose to young people is, what about the Soviet Union? What about China under Mao? What about North Korea? do you really like who adopted socialism? Because they not only failed economically, they impoverished their people, and over 100 million people were starved to death by those three entities collectively during the 20th century. What is it about that that you really like? 
You know, in 2003, retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor remarked, quote, knowledge about the ideas embodied in the Constitution and the ways in which it shapes our lives is not passed down from generation to generation through the gene pool. It must be learned anew by each generation. And it is not simply enough to read or memorize the Constitution. Rather, we should try to understand the ideas that gave it life, that gave it strength still today. Talk about why this is such a commitment for the Stetson family office. Why is this so important to your family, Chuck? What we've always felt is that we need to remember why the U.S. has become the most successful country in the world economically and where our success comes from. And it comes from the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution is the longest-serving constitution in the world, and it came out of the Declaration of Independence. Let me contrast something. There was another Declaration of Independence. It was the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. It came in 1789. Let's see what happened. They almost went immediately into the French Revolution. They went into the Reign of Terror. Tens of thousands of people were killed at the guillotine. They had 12 years of the tyrant Napoleon. And then they've had 17 constitutions in France, and they've had five republics. Gee, the concepts that are in our Declaration of Independence worked. The concepts that were in the French Declaration did not work. We need to understand that. We've got to fight for freedom, but to fight for it, we have to understand what we're fighting for. Indeed, and it's very counterintuitive to understand, particularly the Constitution, Chuck, and why it's a limiting set of principles in the end about the power of government and through structure. I mean, in the end, our founders were skeptical about centralized power, and so they created a lot of conflict that would make it very hard to do stuff. Gridlock, which is often decried uh, in, in American politics, was the purpose, was the actual purpose of the Constitution, to, to send stuff back to the people closest to home, because that's where people knew each other, that's where people could trust each other, and the further away from home it gets, the less we know what's going on. Very counterintuitive. Uh, it's a, you know, the Constitution is generally taught, as you know, Chuck, through the Bill of Rights, but the, the structure of the Constitution is largely ignored. That's very true. And there's a little bit of history here that we need to learn about, which we talk about in our Freedom Series. We go back to the Magna Carta. What was the Magna Carta all about? It was the king had too much power. The king could do things like taxation and getting engaged in wars. And finally, the knights said enough. They got the king to sign the Magna Carta to give them a whole bunch of rights that the king could not act without consulting uh, the knights. That we actually, among other things in the uh, Magna Carta, we got the right to uh, jury trials with their peers. That came out of that. But more importantly, there were a number of writers in the late 16th century in Geneva. And what they were writing about is that the king, when they're crowned, makes a covenant with the people. If the king fails to keep up that, that covenant, then the people could overthrow and replace the king. And by the way, that is a key concept 
to the Declaration of Independence, where you find actually the word tyrant shows up in the Declaration of Independence. Most people don't know that. And the idea that even if people elected uh, government officials, they could be removed from the office. And by the way, the U.S. Constitution provides a means for doing it. So we have some systems in place which remove the central power and give the power to the people. Don't forget that it starts out, we the people. And that is so important. And when we come back, more with Chuck Stetson. The Stetson family office are proud sponsors of our Constitution Week. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all of the content this week. It's terrific. More with Chuck Stetson after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue the final installment of our celebration of the Constitution here on Constitution Week, and we're with Chuck Stetson, and the Stetson Family Office is the sponsor of this great week of content, and you can find out more about all the great curriculum they provide to schools, to homeschoolers, to charter schools. Essentials in Education does that work. And you can go to www.constitutioncurriculum.org. Chuck, one of the things you mentioned to me is that when asked, only about a quarter of Americans could name all three branches of government. And a third, well, they couldn't name a single one. Considering how many years our kids are in school, this is astonishing, Chuck. You also mentioned legislation by the late Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia requiring some basic constitutional education for all of our kids. We could cover all of these things in a few days and maybe a week, but talk about Robert Byrd, a Democrat, who, like many of his generation from left and right, really cared about the Constitution. Robert Byrd actually carried around the U.S. Constitution in his pocket. And he holds it up sometimes, and it looks like uh, uh, he's holding up a Bible. And, it, and I think to him it really was the Bible, in the sense that it's the Bible of how the country needs to be run. And he objected on a lot of things where, you know, if the, uh, any of the three divisions of government, the executive run by the president, the legislature, or the judicial exceeded what they were set out to do in the Constitution, he objected to it. And rightly so. There's a tension, there's a balance. You know, uh, if going to the Federalist Papers, you go to Federalist 51, and James Madison said to the effect that, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need any of this stuff. But they're not. And the whole idea of the three branches of government was to balance each other so that nothing would get out of control, so that there was a tension between them, because people know that men are not angels. And I think that that's a uh, critically important part to keep in mind. And it's, again, very well explained um, in the Federalist Papers. Another thing that James Madison did was um, Federalist 10. I'll give a shout out to Hillsdale College because I was uh, up there and I sat through a freshman class teaching the U.S. Constitution. I think they've got it right and every university ought to have a class on the Constitution. And I sat, listened to how do you have 
a majority rule and not go uh, roughshod over the minority. And there were protections that were put in the U.S. Constitution to make sure that that roughshod work never fully happened. We have some great rules. We got the longest serving constitution in the world, and we got to use it as such. Indeed, and and in the end, we can't use it if we don't know it. Alexander Hamilton, one of the framers, wrote in the first of the Federalist Papers in support of ratification of the Constitution that it was, quote, reserved to the people of this country to decide whether we are capable of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether we are forever destined to pend for our political constitutions on accident and force. That is the regime under which so many people in this world live, Chuck, and that is either accident or force. Talk about those two things. We need to really remember where we are and the freedom which is the exception in the world. We've become so used to it that we don't really realize it. We don't realize the history. We don't realize what was being rejected in the Magna Carta. It was the control and the monopoly that the king had or thought he had in terms of doing taxation, uh, whatever he wanted to do, uh, whatever wars he wanted to enter into. And the knights drew him back. And the Constitution provides a mechanism where we can debate some of these things and what, what the merit of is it? What's the, is it? Is it right to uh, increase taxation or should we lower taxation? Is it right to go into a war? Is it not right to go into a war? We need to remember these things. We need to teach it. When I was growing up, we had a civics class and I can remember going through a lot of these civics things and I, I, it's really getting short shrift and uh, what I often hear in uh, a good-hearted way saying, the school saying, oh, we've got so much to do. Yes, I agree that they've got so much to do, they're required to do, but I think we ought to get our priorities straight. This has to be a priority. This has to be close to the top of the list. We've got to be teaching it, and there are no excuses. No, there are not, and it's remarkable what we we ask of our immigrants to know about our country, the the tests they have to take, the oath of allegiance they have to take, Uh, It's remarkable, and yet we don't require this of our own citizens, Chuck. Well, actually, uh, it's kind of interesting we do. There's a Joe Faust Institute headquartered out in Arizona, and they've got about, I think it's around 13 states to pass legislation that requires um, that the um, people graduating from high school must pass the same immigration test. And why not? They need to know the same thing that the immigrants know, and the immigrants often know a heck of a lot more than we do. And that's not right. We need to know our own history. We need to know what freedom is all about. And once we know what freedom is about and why it's important and why it's critically important to flourishing, we should be fighting for it. Absolutely. And as we learn more about this and go talk to our local officials about teaching our kids about the Constitution in our schools, what are some of the resources we can benefit from? As you know, we've spent all week long with Hillsdale College and the National Constitution Center, organizations you know well. Talk about what they're doing, Chuck, and what your organization is doing to help tell the story of the Constitution. You mentioned the Constitution Center. That was set up by Congress. Jeffrey Rosen runs it. He's been doing a great job. And one of the new projects, it was the Templeton Foundation that funded it, was to look at what we agree on where we disagree and they've got scholars from both sides, 
and it's a very thoughtful process. We have put together a group of uh, organizations for the National Constitutional Literacy Campaign. If you go to www.constitutiondays.org, you'll find it. And there are 30 groups, including Hillsdale College, including a number of universities, including the Constitution Center, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, uh, the First Amendment Center, and just a lot of people. We believe that we need to kind of make this a campaign overall. In terms of curriculum, I would urge you to go to hillsdale.edu, which has a number of great courses. They're for free. They've got, I think, at last count, somewhere around 3 million people have taken it, and it's very thoughtful. I think it's really a little bit more for adults that have gotten out of college. Uh, What we do is that we have put together a freedom series for high schoolers. That's the world we know and are in. We think it should be a week, could could be a two-week course. Uh, We have the U.S. Constitution Reader. We have Freedom in America Part 1. We're working on Freedom in America Part 2. The nice part about the readers is that when you're doing a course, you have to get approval at the high school level from the school board to do a semester course or a full-year course. But for a three-week course or a two-week course, the teacher can just do that. The school can just do that. Schools can actually buy this kind of stuff and implement it. And the thing that we have also is the teacher's edition to show teachers how to do lesson plans. Because it's nice to have all this stuff out there that you want to teach, but it needs to be organized and it needs to be presented in ways that students are used to getting it. So uh, we have all these resources. So I've just mentioned three websites. I've mentioned constitutiondays.org, which is the National Constitutional Literacy Campaign. Uh, Mentioned hillsdale.edu, which has the free courses on the Constitution. And I've mentioned constitutioncurriculum.org, which is our uh, Essentials in Education website that has available the the courses for the schools. Chuck, the, the last thing I want to talk about is the space that we started this with. Freedom isn't normal. It's the exception. I can tell you one country that I go to. I'm not going to mention which one it is. I'm on the watch list. Uh, They don't like people like myself coming into the country, even though I'm not doing any uh, anything bad. The the police car that's outside the place where we're meeting uh, is not there to protect us. It's to spy on us. That's not a real good thing when the government gets so powerful like that. Uh, What happened in the Magna Carta and what happened with some of these writers uh, writing from Geneva in the 16th century is they rejected all that. They said that we needed to be free. And that's where you end up today. You only have less than a minority of the 195 countries that are truly free. You have about 30% that are somewhat free and about 25% that are not free. I can tell you from going to some of the countries that are not free, it's, it's, it's not a fun thing to do, but you have to play by the rules. And um, I work in some of those countries, particularly on things like healthcare and the like. And uh, I think we can make some progress, but it's, it's tough doing. And we've got to remember what freedom's all about and why it's worth fighting for. And Chuck, it's so true. And what freedom is all about is embedded in the Declaration and the Constitution, and without them, we're not free. And frankly, the world is not free. 
and it is worth fighting for. So, folks, Hillsdale College, the National Constitution Center, and, of course, Essentials and Education, all three of them provide such great resources for you and your families. But get to your school boards. Ask them to teach this stuff. It's important. It's your tax dollars, at least on Constitution Day, September 17th, every year. Go to your school board and demand that the Constitution be taught. Our American Stories here with the classic and most important story of them all, the story of our Constitution, the story of our founding, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And if you've been anywhere near a beach or a campsite in the last few years, you've probably noticed the high-end Yeti brand coolers just about everywhere. If you don't already own one yourself, that is. They're built to last. They work remarkably well. And no, they're not sponsors. The people behind these Yeti coolers are a family of entrepreneurs out of Austin, Texas. And they have an incredible story. Here's Jesse. Roger Cedars is a businessman and inventor. He quit his job as a high school teacher in the mid-70s to go full-time with his company, Flexcoat, which is still in business today. So it's no surprise that he passed on an innovative attitude to his sons, Yeti co-founders Roy and Ryan Cedars. But even though the entrepreneurial spirit resonates loudly, it's Roger's lessons on fatherhood that stand out as Roy and Ryan raise families of their own. Bad, Ryan. For a 28-gauge. When Ryan was still wearing diapers, we'd have a thunderstorm. He would wake up, go look out the window before daybreak. When he was able to get outside, he'd take a little red wagon and a little net and go out in the ditches and uh, scoop up crawfish out of the ditches. There's just something in his blood that makes him want to hunt. If he was born 500 years ago, in Texas, and you had to survive, he could still survive. You know, there's something about that. I know those Comanches might get me. <laughs> <laughs> well. Hunting and fishing was our passion. I think some people would think we're over the top, but you, you have to have that passion first, and then you might stumble into something. We were into the outdoors, we were into the gear, and, and that's what eventually got us to Yeti. Boy had always said that ideas are like commodities, and, and they really are unless you're hanging around someone like Roger or Roy who can bring them to life in front of you or take them to market. It was the, really the boat business that brought me to the cooler business. Cool. Everything about the boats I was putting together was high-end and durable and for fishing the Texas Gulf Coast the way we like to fish, except ordinary coolers. They weren't really matching the quality of the rest of the boat. And if you look back, everything led to the cooler business. Growing up out here in Driftwood, in the Texas Hill Country, we spent our entire days outside. We were running around with BB guns, and then eventually pellet guns, then eventually 22s. 
you know, our upbringing, our dad's small business, him wearing all the hats. We were always out getting our hands dirty, building stuff. I think that exposure, it was valuable. Growing up when we worked, we worked inside the business. Other kids were out there mowing lawns to make their summer money, and Ryan and I were building fishing rods. It was always flex code. As long as we could remember. Yeah. That started out of his garage in Houston when we were probably, the, I think it was the same year I was born and Ryan was three or four. If we can't find what we want, we make it. This is my business, this building here is 32 years old. Flexco, our number one product is we sell coatings to all the fishing rod companies. Almost every fishing rod made in the US, I would say 90% of them use our coating. We call this a lifestyle business. Everything we make, we make it for ourselves first and then we try to sell it. I just started making gadgets and anything related to building fishing rods and it just turned into a business. The reason Ryan and I were so fired up about starting our own small business was to have that lifestyle that my dad had. What we saw with our dad was he had a lot of free time and could do what he wanted to do. The same way he is with those kids as how he was with us. When I got off the bus at three o'clock, he'd drop everything he was doing in the business and be with us. He was engaged, he was hands-on, he was there, he was present. He always had a van around here. I drove it to the Florida Keys 13 times. We didn't have any money. We were living out of the van, sleeping during the daytime and 90 degrees, and then fishing at night below the bridges. It was a lot of fun. And I was kind of encouraged to do that kind of stuff by my dad. I think it teaches you some valuable skills in life. I always say, thank goodness for golf. <laughs> Get those guys off the water. <laughs> I am a true believer in starting your own business and eventually you'll find a path. As my kids get older, that's one of my main goals is to try to figure out how to get that passion built up inside of them for doing your own thing. When I was becoming a dad, I thought naturally I was going to be a good dad like my dad just because that's what I was exposed to. He set the bar pretty high, almost too high, where it's hard to duplicate for our kids. The most precious resource we have is time, and that's time with the family. It's different times. We have all these other distractions. The easy path is not the right path. It's harder to pull those electronics away from the kids, make them look out the window and see where you're going. The formula is being engaged, being present, and supportive. It's a lot easier to say it than actually do it. I tell you, that's the ultimate in my mind. Just find something you love and just stick with it. Yeti began to take off in 2011 when sales hit 29 million as word spread among the hardcore hunting and fishing crowd. In 2014, that figure hit 147 million. For 2015, Yeti closed in on 450 million in sales. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great piece. And by the way, that's the voice of the American dream there. Practical, sturdy, risk-takers, self-reliant. And it ain't made up, folks. It happens all over the country. We bring you stories like these because, well, the rest of the media doesn't. This is Lee Habib, Yeti's story, a great family story. 
here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell, and you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago, uh, you've moved from Brooklyn <laughs> to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually oh, consider that deep dish stuff pizza. But that's another thing. That's a, maybe another show. How how well, are I'm things? I'm liking those. I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh yeah, with uh, all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh no no um, no doubt. Portillo's. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, they, they, look, you, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. Right? I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll, we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans <laughs> move a lot, and we are probably, as a people, the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think I the wonder Finns, if that's true. That I, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why can't we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's meta ADHD. I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president and his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big ears. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld ear. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's on the list and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all like slightly pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show. Yeah, that's true. You know, one day, I'll never forget this. I was at an airport at JFK. Our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who had not seen each other in a while, and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting. And it was fascinating. Well, what we started fixating on was ears. And I don't know why, but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird-looking ears. They are weird-looking. And if you think as we're talking, if you touch the top of your ear, I'm not in front of a mirror, but I have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top. And they have, it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something. They have, they have all these little ridges at the top. So I had asked the doctor about that, um, and he just said, you know, basically, 
you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face, you would hear totally different. Well, because you're just used. Everyone has their own um, way of hearing, and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face. Which I'm sure there's been ear transplants done, and maybe it was really weird. So, do, so, so, do the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse? Well, they we it doesn't really. It's not quite like that. It's more like. You're, you're only born with one pair, and so that's just how you hear. And so it's, not, it's already optimized for you, for everyone. You get used to it. So, so he was saying if you, know, if you had this ear transplant, you would, it would just be super weird, and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear. So if I took your ears, your huge, I'm sure, ears, and slapped them onto my tiny head, um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got. Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. <laughs> and, and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. Tell us about Dr. Oh Rickett. This is the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing um, creating these hearing aids, and so he's at Vanderbilt University, and he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scroll, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column, you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. The, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they they don't either. They hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing 
um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. Right. And then and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the the sound down and it acts as an amplifier, but it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilants and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rickett said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, ha- you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it- itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that you'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some of those little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're, you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning, and my daughter will come to me, and she'll ask me to clean her ears out, and she's only seven. I do, too, and I love it, and maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever. Oh, that would be a really... Oh, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, that would yeah, be really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, it's uh, it's you can't see us. <laughs> That's, that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing. Doctor Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can. What you're doing is you're most of us like you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh huh. <laughs> and he had it's totally gross. And he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. He pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q-tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. And we'll keep talking about Chicago. And hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question, why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. Frontside 12, perfect. That is the run that he needed, and he put it down. And the score's in. It's the return of the king in the men's half pipe. White takes the goal. Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, Skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always did. Wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis, and I put them together, and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast, and my wife watched us through the window, and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966, and in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise 
and when I was young and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school and I went up to see the headmaster who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home. And that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppin's National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Panda let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started, is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, a uh, company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, I just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. 
But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time. And I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week, and it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, Subscribe to our newsletter. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the, the key things I think... Um, that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were... You know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody was had their own, you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was, it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million-dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room, and um, it was a, a group of, you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding, and it was just an exciting time. And it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding in the 80s 
It was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge. And he literally did the legwork, went door to door and sold our sport, you know. Granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this, that, and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who rip, reap the benefits of that, you know. The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985 exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. Because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. 
and Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always, he's just considered them family. And he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect you know he totally is like riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it he's not he's not all business he's totally like loves snowboarding and loves the team and that's just his thing he's just like is so into it and I guess that's what's brought him so much success you know it's just because he has genuine love for the for the sport and he's one of the pioneers here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon and you hear it all the time, it's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that, that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best case scenario on the planet, you know, like, the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy, it means he handled it, and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding, dictating where it goes. In 1998, Less than a decade after Time Magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know. That's why it's, Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us. You know, they want it to look good, but they want it to function more so. At first I was like, wow, he's the boss, like, you know, but he's just like a friend. He's just chill and great, he's just a down-to-earth guy. So it's, it's nice to have a boss like that. Not many people get nice bosses, but we do. Here's three-time Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. This is, honestly, this is where I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know, I've never really felt like it. he was a boss, ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like... You know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer, but the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or you know from looking like nascar drivers you know and putting patches all over them and selling their you know themselves to everybody i mean that's not what people want to see and that's kind of good i mean there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with i think all board sports that we don't want to lose and i think that um that might keep things down a little bit and a little bit smaller hopefully it'll just sort of keep it seen during his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts 
even allowed snowboarding, but today it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded. Um, I wouldn't even say dreams because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life. And they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. <laughs>